It's September of 2017, in the remote northwestern region of Myanmar known as Rakhine State. If you were to look from across the Naf River, just over the border in Bangladesh, you would see plumes of smoke rising over a thick jungle. Refugees, dozens or hundreds at a time, gather on the opposite bank, waiting for a rickety boat to take them across. Just weeks ago, a group of militants from the ethnic minority Rohingya attacked several border posts and police stations. Now, this wasn't some highly organized army, but a makeshift group with many carrying crude, homemade weapons. But the response from Myanmar's military was swift and inexplicably cruel. Thousands were killed, women raped, entire villages burnt to the ground. Over 750,000 Rohingya fled into Bangladesh. You probably know this story already, but it's important to come back to it, look at it anew. Don't let the horror ever become too familiar. It's a genocide that still continues, as two years later, Rohingya still haven't returned from the overflowing refugee camps in Bangladesh, which are now as large as many of the world's major metropolises. But I want to take you back to that initial time, in the middle of what was euphemistically called clearance operations. A Buddhist monk, the abbot of a local monastery, offers to show some foreign journalists some pictures, which he says proved that it was the Rohingya themselves who burned down their villages. The photos are published on social media. A government spokesperson for state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi picks it up and shares it on his Facebook page. The pictures present quite a tableau. One man carries a long wooden beam spreading fire around the thatched roof of a house. In front of him, a woman waves a machete threateningly. But look closer and something is amiss. Everything feels a little too perfect, captured at multiple angles. And the woman, what looks like a loose tablecloth adorns her head in a makeshift attempt to look like a Muslim headscarf. Then later, the Associated Press reports that the same man and woman had been introduced to them by government officials as Hindu victims of the Rohingya. They weren't Rohingya at all. The whole photo was staged. Today on Polarities, the virus of fake news in Myanmar both a brand new problem and a very, very old one. I'm Joel Elliott. In 2015, Myanmar held its first relatively free elections, and Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD party rose to power. And with the sudden shift towards a fragile democracy, Myanmar, which was for so long an isolated and technologically undeveloped country, began to open up. Almost overnight, 
Myanmar became wired. You know, from 2010, one SIM card cost about 500 USD. And before that, the SIM card costed like uh, 5,000 USD. That's Burmese activist That Shui Win. It was very difficult for a person to get an internet. But once the country opened up for the telecommunication, SIM card cost much cheaper. It only cost like $1 now. I spoke to him in 2017 in a bustling park in downtown Yangon that stands adjacent to the city hall, a central Buddhist temple, and a mosque, all on the same corner, a symbol of the city's long, if fraught, multicultural history. That told me about how, in just a matter of years, Myanmar went from a place where internet was reserved for the very elite in society to a place where even those without regular electricity could afford data in a cheap mobile phone. But the social costs of that rate of acceleration were steep. We didn't know, you know how to filter the news from the internet. And we didn't know how to check the facts. So uh, people were quite naive. And because of our poor education system, we don't have much critical thinking you know, in, as a public. So they tend to believe whatever appears in the internet. In educated and media-savvy countries, fake news has become a huge problem, swaying elections, provoking violence, stimulating hyperpolarization. An entire army of automated Twitter bots fake news and stories trolls. far outperformed legitimate it ones is the on definition Facebook. Definition of fake news. Deepening distrust in mainstream media. We are not serious about. Imagine its effect in a country that not only had no history of media literacy, but had virtually no history of the internet itself. Worse still, in Myanmar, even more than in Western countries, Facebook and the internet are practically synonymous. And just the week before we spoke, incendiary rumors were spreading on both sides of the divide, on the anniversary of 9-11. For the Buddhist side, that message said the Muslims were attacking all the Buddhist people on the memory of 9-11. And for the Muslim side, the Buddhists will come and kill you guys for the you know, memory of 9-11. Then both communities are instable in because of like, that rumor. Then it created mistrust in between of the people. And in some places, that instability spilled over into violence. And even in one place called Taunwinji, a group of Buddhist people, they destroyed a, a Muslim mosque and, and nearby uh, Muslim-owned shops as well. So Facebook, it became a tool to, to, you know, instigate the people. By 2017, fake news had already reached its most insidious form, sowing discord and violence. But who was behind it? And why? And how did it find such a welcome platform on Facebook? So who am I speaking to right now? We would like to request you not to mention our name in your report. Don't use your individual names or don't use the Burma Monitor name? Yes, uh, you can use Burma Monitor, okay. but not our individual names. Like, What are you concerned about with uh, publishing your names? Um, Firstly, we are a liberal organization because there are many threats. And 2020 is general election time in our country, and we have to do some works with union election commissions. A little bit complex situation, so uh, we want to hide our name. Of course, I can do that. That's no problem at all. Tell me a little bit of background about Burma Monitor. Uh, when did you start, and what was the motivation behind 
this I spoke to four members of Burma Monitor, an organization that started in 2016 to counter the rapid spread of fake news and hate speech. But the story really starts earlier than that. Back in 2012 and 13, at the same time the country was just opening up to the internet, long brewing tensions between Buddhists and Muslims turned into brutal violence. There is a great conflict in 2012 and 2013 in Rakhine State and also Metila. Yes, uh, there is a very bloody and uh, killing a lot of people at that time. The violence disproportionately affected Muslims, who often became permanently displaced. And the rise of fake news saw the images from these incidents live on. 2015 and 2016, people believe very updated and fresh news related to the previous conflict. In other words, two, three, four years later, people were spreading photographs of that conflict while trying to pass it off as yesterday's news, resurfacing again to provoke more conflict, like photographic zombies. Worse still, the people spreading this news uh, use their name as the political party representative on the up-to-date news agency. The perpetrators often appropriated the names of trustworthy sources in political parties or news agencies in order to grant a little more authority to their fake news. Free of context, posts could claim to be from anyone at any time. It was an incredible amount of power. They get a real impact on the conflict. Then in 2017, it all erupted. Just off the edge of Bangladesh, it would have been impossible to look away. Compared to previous outbursts of violence, which were often spontaneous and mob-like, this was far more coordinated by the military, a systematic campaign of violence. Begum explains through her tears that her husband and brother were killed when the military laid waste to her village. Even for a military that had for decades committed atrocities in the process of cracking down on separatist groups and ethnic minorities around the country, this was a new level of brutality. But through fake news, the military could both deflect from their actions and create the popular support across the country by rallying hatred against the Rohingya. And again, the photos were often recycled from older incidents and completely wrenched out of context. They used uh, many fake photos. Uh, for example, uh, in 2015, we backed against the national education law, so police beat us out. But the fake news headlines were... Rohingya people um, beat our Burmese uh, people. There were staged incidents, like the fake photo of Rohingya allegedly burning down their own houses. There was an image that was supposedly Rohingya training with high-powered machine guns. In actuality, the image was from a conflict in Bangladesh in 1971. There was even some pro-Rohingya fake news. Sometimes the lack of photographic or video evidence of the atrocities compelled people to spread photos of completely different people and places to hold up as irrefutable evidence. But the majority of the fake news was directed against the Rohingya, often accompanied by explicitly genocidal language. And despite receiving repeated warnings from civil society groups for years, Facebook was woefully unprepared. Initially, there was only one Burmese-speaking content moderator working for the whole company. But even after they had flagged the problem and increased the number of Burmese-language moderators, the most brutal hate speech was still getting through, 
or getting flagged too late. Some of the reasons range from negligence to a continued lack of resources to some very odd explanations. Are they using a lot of automatic, like automatically flagging words or are human beings actually looking at the posts and deciding if it's hate speech or not? In early times, uh, Facebook used uh, automatic uh, systems um, to counter uh, hate speech and fake news, uh, but it really doesn't work because there is a hate speech like kala in Burmese language, but when they use a AI system to uh, detect that word kala and delete, the word experts share in Burmese. The problem is, the word kalar in Burmese can also form part of the word for chair, or a lentil or chickpea. With a dark kind of absurdity, Facebook was flagging and removing posts that were referring to chairs or chickpeas. At other times, it was a problem of context. They don't understand what Burmese words say. So, for example, there is a mostly religious festival and the ultra-nationalist group called actions on the online very uh, commonly and very visibly. But they don't use the word kill or attack or fight or they don't use that word. Uh, they just simply say clear the nets of bugs. Clear the net of bugs? According to one report that states it's very dangerous, they are calling action and to do something. But Facebook response is it's okay. It's doesn't include any kind of words of expression that violates their community standards. And finally, Facebook often made bad decisions about who to trust in flagging fake news. They use trusted partners, so they rely on government reports or uh, and what NLD gave to that. The NLD, National League of Democracy, if you recall, the governing party headed by Aung San Suu Kyi, so wait, they're relying on the NLD's information to help counter hate speech, but hasn't the NLD been involved in spreading some of this fake news? NLD party has their own program for countering hate speech, and they use 6 billion Myanmar checks. Or almost 4 million US dollars. For countering and hate speech, and they delete many accounts in the name of uh, hate speech countering. But uh, according to our analysis, most of the account deleted by the NLD program is those who oppositions to NLD. So nothing to do with fake news, just using that title fake news to stop their enemies, is that right? Yes, uh, in our opinion, there's no progress in countering fake news and hate speech, but they make this program and for the uh, only party interest to attack the oppositions. Wow, okay. On the one hand, the situation in Myanmar is unique in ways that Facebook failed to understand. But on the other, the dynamic of fake news plays out in similar ways as in North America or Europe. Along with the growth of actual fake news comes the simultaneous abuse of the term fake news as propaganda to muddy the waters. I realized how nasty, how mean, how vicious, and how fake the press can be. I'm very proud to hear the president use the term fake they news. are the fake, fake. Knowing how fake news spreads online is one thing, but why is a lot thornier. I asked Burma Monitor who was behind it, and they told me the primary culprits were connected to the military, which makes sense. 
But the second largest group? The second largest group is um, Mabata and Ultranational Leagues, uh, Extreme Leagues. Mabata, short for the Organization for the Protection of Race and Religion, is a group of Buddhist monks associated with nationalism in Myanmar. And surprisingly, they're at the center of a lot of the worst comments and posts spread around Facebook. What do you think motivates Mabata Buddhist leaders who are spreading this kind of hate speech? There are anti-Islam books saying hate speech about Islams in every monastery 50 or 30 years in our country. So this is done by the government at the time with their own purposes. So the understanding of the monks to this issue is that and no such a thing like religion. Before the election, these same monks often explicitly opposed the military, even leading a failed uprising called the Saffron Revolution in 2007. But nowadays, at the highest levels, you can see an uncomfortably close relationship between the military and powerful monks. And no monk is more notorious for spreading venom against the Rohingya than Uri Ratu. Do these animals eat with their asses when they have meals? For example, do they put rice into their bottoms instead of their mouths? When they go to toilet, do they inverse their behinds and then excrete from their mouths? So some beats who are opposite to all and everything are claiming they are natives of Myanmar. Words like these are vicious like a horrifying Nazi stand-up routine. But while we Ratu gets the infamy, more toned-down versions of that rhetoric are shockingly common, even the norm in Myanmar, enabled by a mountain of fake news and obfuscation. But before the internet and Facebook, the weaponization of fake news had begun around the very name Rohingya. In the Burmese view, it's the name itself that's offensive, a name used by Bengali imposters as if the proper label was a prerequisite for a group's very right to exist. And that sentiment is older, certainly older than Facebook. But for the Rohingya, many who have lived in Myanmar going back to the colonial period of the 19th century, or even earlier, that systematic deprivation, it's not as old as you might think. What are your activities right now? Like, what are you working on? I spoke to Yu Cha Min, a Rohingya politician who was elected as a member of parliament in 1990, an election that was later overturned by the ruling junta. Later, he was arrested and locked up as a political prisoner for seven years. In this situation, what is happening in Myanmar? This peace process, we have just to watch. We can do nothing. In 2017, Yu Cha Min was serving as head of a political party without any power disenfranchised and stripped of citizenship, while many in his family had fled after their villages were burned down. He's feeling completely powerless, unable to do anything but talk to the media who come into his office on a daily basis. At what point did the government decide that Rohingya could not serve in parliament or vote? When were those rights kind of taken away? In British times, Rohingya were a Burmese citizen. They have the right to vote and to contest in election. And in all Burmese election, there are about 10 national election. For the last election, 2015 election, before the elections, Rohingya Soya, disenfranchised their rights of vote, so yeah, a strip of. So 2015, the only remotely democratic election in Myanmar's history, 
became the one where Rohingya were cut out of the process. A lot of issues related to citizenship have been tied to the Rohingya registering as Bengalis, right? That the government wants them to be, to accept the identification as Bengalis to get some form of citizenship, is that right? Formerly there was no Bengali registration. Also, either Muslims or Rohingya from the time of independence in their records. Enforcing the Bengali identity is a conspiracy against these people to degrade their status so that they cannot claim Burmese indigenous status. The Rohingya have been gradually disenfranchised over the last several decades. And with that disenfranchisement came the toxicity of the name. But it's clear the conflict goes beyond a perception of ethnic identity and belonging, but is framed as a clash between two irreconcilable belief systems. Do you think that religion is important in this conflict? I mean, are the Rohingya discriminated against because they're Muslims or just because they're perceived as foreigners? Or is it both? At present, the Rohingya identity is synonymous with Muslim. You can use it alternately. And the idea of a grand struggle between Buddhists and Muslim invaders, that's a much older story. And it comes out in some of the subtlest but most insidious ways. It's even prevalent among Myanmar's interfaith leaders, supposedly on the front lines of religious harmony. My name is Ariya Wonsa Piwonsa. Uh, but uh, my nickname is Miaudi Seyato. What do you think about some Buddhist monks and leaders who have spoken out against Muslims or maybe other minorities? I don't agree with that at all. That's why we are against it. We fought against it. If we had not opposed them, they might be celebrating their victory now. We had to go against them. We couldn't sleep all night. We had to go against all of their wrong and negative perspectives that were spreading on Facebook. Do you think that that kind of speech affects like the violence in Rakhine State right now? Do you think there's a relationship between what's happening in the rest of Myanmar and that kind of hate speech and the violence that's happening in Rakhine? It is not because of we do hate speech. It was since earlier they have been trying to make up conflicts with Rakhine people. If you look at history, you can see that Rohingyas kill a lot of Rakhine people. That was in the history, they can hide it. The Rohingya killed Rakhines, they were using their religions as an excuse so that the Muslims would stand on their side. They are intentionally making up the conflicts among us and the Muslims because they don't have enough weapons and they are not strong enough to attack us. So they use that strategy of splitting us. They use religion as a weapon. Bengalis are not the victims, they are the terrorists. Talking about invaders when 500 or 600,000 Rohingya are running in the other direction to Bangladesh, uh, over half the population now. You speak against Mabata and people listen to Mabata because they believe 
Buddhism could be destroyed by Islam, by Muslims. Isn't that the same story as people from Bangladesh are coming here and, uh, you know, over the border and they're foreigners, they don't belong in the country? That is a bit different because we believe that not all the Muslims are bad. Some of them are harmless, but still, most of them seem very dangerous to us. Because historically, wherever they go, they have procreated a lot more than other religions. So basically, they increased the numbers, and once the population is huge, they started asking for the land of that place as their own. They started claiming that place as their own place. That's how Pakistan and Bangladesh were founded, and Afghanistan. Earlier, they were also Buddhist, and then now they all have become Muslims. So you see, Muslims also need to stop all this colonizing to make us believe that they are harmless and safe for us to stay together on the same land. They are responsible for that. We are worried. We have already put up with them a lot. At the same time, they also need to be responsible for their side. What does it mean? They, they should, uh, should try uh, their fault. Uh, they, should, they do so many bad things. It's incredible to hear an interfaith activist who opposes the most militant form of nationalism in Myanmar still position Islam as an existential threat. And this is a kind of fake news that goes beyond the internet and Facebook that isn't defined solely by intentionally slanderous and divisive speech meant to stir conflict, but lies in a deeper-seated view of the past and future of Buddhism itself. Some Buddhists, uh, in trying to make a case against Islam, uh, have relied on the, the words of monks and other scholars who have categorized a number of like countries in the world as sort of formerly Buddhist countries, right? And they've included a wide range of places here like Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Indonesia. That's Matthew Walton, a professor at the University of Toronto, specializing in Buddhist nationalism in Myanmar. In their narrative, these places were Buddhist countries, they were invaded in some form or another by Islam. A narrative which isn't entirely unfounded. Indonesia, we know, had Buddhist polities, right, and Buddhist communities. But it was never a Buddhist country. And as far as we know, um, Islam spread throughout the archipelago, largely through kind of like trade and, and nonviolent expansion. These narratives of centuries-old history are periodically revived by modern events. Think the fear arising from the global war on terror, or the Taliban's destruction of Buddhist statues in 2001. In the minds of a lot of Buddhists in Myanmar, these events are part of one long continuum, the struggle to fend off Islam. But there's at least one aspect of that anxiety that plays off some uniquely Buddhist beliefs as well. So we have to understand one sort of foundational idea, which is um, the idea that the Buddhist religion, the Buddhist community, just like everything in the Buddhist teachings, is impermanent. If the nature of reality is impermanent, well then naturally that includes Buddhism itself. And the Buddha himself spoke to that paradoxical situation although his time frame was rather optimistic. What we call the sasana, which is not just the texts, not just the monks and the monasteries and the material things, but also the lived experience of Buddhist uh, practice and knowledge among the community. The sasana was predicted to exist for a set number of years, right? In some accounts was 10,000, in some accounts was 5,000. 
Ironically, the object of some Buddhist leaders' worst fears was also one of the most fundamental tenets of their belief system. But the fear of losing traditions that bind a community can also be healthy at times. It is in most cases a kind of productive anxiety, right? So if we understand it as encouraging good practice, supporting the monks, you know, being a good Buddhist in, in your own life, teaching Buddhism to your children, and teaching all the values that it entails. And Matthew has documented how the default mode throughout Myanmar's history has been some form of peaceful coexistence. Not equality, not justice, but the basic ability to live together without overt violence. Until anti-Rohingya sentiment over the last few years, we have to understand it as particular acts of rupture, right? That have mm -hmm. broken the, the bonds of communities that, you know, maybe didn't love each other, but that certainly lived together without riots and violence. And so that forces us to look at the kinds of dynamics that, that actually led to these events, to identify the actors, right, that might have um, prompted or promoted this, have incited things, uh, you know, with their speech. Do you think that one of the factors in this rupture is the actual rise of fake news or hate speech online. If anything, probably the extent of what we can say social media, Facebook as doing is condensing the speed with which everything spreads, right? As in the rest of the world, the presence of fake news in Myanmar is nothing new. Even in the 1930s when anti-Muslim violence spread, there were publications and journals to stoke resentment. But the speed at which a fake news story can take root, that's a new phenomenon. Fake news is less the spark for violence, perhaps, than it is a factor that quickly spins that violence into a comforting narrative. The Rohingya aren't being massacred and driven out of their country, they're invaders fended off by the brave military. And so firmly crystallized in the public imagination, these false narratives serve to create the public support that allows for the military and militias to further violence. A vicious cycle where the respect and authority of Buddhist leaders plays an important role in legitimizing genocide. In the two years since the peak of the violence in Rakhine State, the role of social media has been gradually acknowledged. It came up in Mark Zuckerberg's Senate hearing of April 2018 in a question from Senator Patrick Leahy as a staffer holds up a sign showing printouts of Facebook posts. It calls for the death of a Muslim journalist. Now that threat went straight through your detection systems. It spread very quickly. Why couldn't it be removed within 24 hours? Yes, we're working on this. And there are th Zuckerberg made the usual promises. More Burmese language moderators targeting specific accounts. But it seemed that his bar for success was set a bit low. Remember that incident when separate messages to Buddhists and Muslims were sent to incite violence ahead of the anniversary of 9-11? Well, Zuckerberg boasted to a Vox interviewer about their response, despite the fact that the post was only taken down after the damage was done. When pressed, Facebook often falls back on the idea that their platform is simply a neutral space where free speech needs to prevail over other concerns. The first theme is they value freedom of expressions. So one will report to them, according to their communist standard, they say uh, this is kind of freedom of expression, not hate speech, not dangerous, this aside. But Facebook is far from neutral when it comes to the posts that get shared on the platform. The very architecture that exists to boost user engagement creates an environment where fake news thrives. This is what journalist Marcia Stepanek calls the algorithms of fear. Posts that succeed on social media are either boosted by likes, creating an echo chamber, 
or they're boosted by negative comments, creating a flame war. In the vast gulf between lies the kinds of productive and bridge-building conversations we're not having. But despite all the shortcomings, Burma Monitor admits that Facebook is improving. We currently now have the good relation with Facebook and we connect with Facebook, with other organizations, Medu, Pandia. We have uh, some discussions with Facebook and our reporting system is a little bit more, uh, more effective than the previous time. And more effective in what way? By reporting. If we report to the Facebook team and they take actions in a short time. They hire more staff, more Burmese staff who understand Burmese context. Do you think that it's going to be enough? Uh, in our opinion, um, Facebook action is not very effective. They can't control the number of accounts. Yes, Facebook delete accounts and pages dangerous of separating fake news. But once they delete that accounts and fake, the new accounts and pages appear. If they can identify the numbers of accounts, like a one ID, one account, or one SIM card, one account, or one people, one account. If they can reduce the, uh, the numbers of accounts, they have some benefits in controlling fake news and hate speeches. But Burma Monitor, along with nearly everyone else I spoke to, agreed that the solution to Myanmar's fake news problem can't just be reducing or removing speech, but filling it with something else. Facts don't always fill the vacuum of a powerful narrative. Only another narrative can. Changing the entire architecture of algorithms online would help, but in the meantime, organizations like Burma Monitor have attempted to promote counter-narratives, educating the public about various other cultures and ethnicities outside of the Buddhist Bamar majority. And Matt Walton, the University of Toronto professor, Remember how he's talking about those times of peaceful coexistence? We were working with a, a number of youth activists, and what we were often hearing from them was this idea that, yes, you know, their parents, their grandparents had these memories of having lived in these relatively peaceful, uh, religiously plural contexts, but they, meaning, you know, people under the age of 30, had mostly grown up in, you know, either more tense or more segregated neighborhoods. That's the kind of work that in our mind has to happen um, for these experiences to kind of come to the fore and challenge the dominant, overly simplified anti-Muslim anti narrative of the moment and to, and to kind of tell the stories of resilience and of, you know, mutual care and mutual regard. So Matthew, as part of something called the Myanmar Media and Society Project, compiled an oral history of cultural mixing. This sort of interaction and these meaningful relationships occur across somebody's life cycle. And occasionally you would get a person to talk to for whom this was a kind of lifelong story. So we heard from this man who was part of a, a group of a Buddhist and a Muslim and, and a Hindu set of friends, and they were friends from childhood, and he told us stories about them, you know, getting in trouble together, you know, stealing fruit from the neighbor's uh, tree and, and things like that. And, you know, getting older, there, there was this, uh, great anecdote about uh, him wanting to get married and the parents hadn't really approved and so they were in a difficult situation and and the friends actually went out and and basically assisted them in eloping and many of these stories stretch across years and decades and one of them had passed away but but the two of them were in their 80s or 90s and and still meeting essentially every morning getting up at you know 4 30 in the morning and going and starting their day at the tea shop together right but Matthew is careful 
careful not to overly romanticize this period. We're certainly not trying to kind of sugarcoat them and suggest that they're you know, devoid of injustice or, or anything. I mean, one of the disturbing parts about a number of these narratives are the ways in which peaceful coexistence is at times aided by the minority population being relatively quiet and kind of accepting their, their place in society, right? In other words, peace is nothing without justice. And justice requires a top-down effort to guarantee real human rights, especially with regards to the Rohingya. But in terms of bottom-up peace-building efforts, Projects like this oral history provide important counter-narratives. But what can Facebook do? Zuckerberg was back on Capitol Hill last year, testifying in front of Congress, and Representative Jim Himes asked him just that. I read your recent spe speech at Georgetown a couple of times, actually, on freedom of expression, and, and, and I really celebrate your commitment to freedom of expression. But it didn't say anything about Indian Muslims killed because somebody used a Facebook post to organize a mob or... Rohingyas dying in Myanmar because the authorities used a post to organize a mob. Freedom of expression is really hard. At least it's really hard if it means anything. Back in 1788, we didn't just naively say freedom of expression is a good thing. We put in place and committed the resources and invested in those things that would make us worthy to live in a context of freedom of expression. Facebook today is more like a country, in my opinion, than like a company. You have almost $50 billion in cash on your books. Tell us what investment you're making so that this freedom of expression which you enable is a good thing rather than a bad thing. Since 2016, um, we've built much more sophisticated AI systems to proactively identify uh, harmful content. But, but, but let me stop you there, because I got that. I get that, and that's important. But what I'm really looking for is what is the parallel commitment that Facebook will make? What investment will you make in education, in good public discourse, in basic decency? I'm looking for a commitment. I see. On the proactive side, we're going to be investing a lot more in, in, um, in, in partnerships with high-quality uh, journalists and publications to foster that kind of content. And, uh, but now, you know, we're a big company. I feel like we have a responsibility to do this. And, and you have my, 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 my time has expired. I think you have a responsibility to do more than police. It's not clear whether the proposed partnerships with civil society organizations does anything more than the war of attrition of flagging and removing hate speech. I invited a representative of Facebook to comment on this story, but he failed to respond. Like most of the scandals that have rocked Facebook, most of Zuckerberg's solutions were vague, an attempt to both deflect and insist that the company is constantly tweaking, almost as if the real-life violence that stems from mistakes a company has made was just a bug to be ironed out in code. As for repercussions for the immediate perpetrators of violence in Myanmar, that could be a long time coming. In November, the African nation of Gambia brought a case against the Myanmar authorities before the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And in December, Aung San Suu Kyi herself traveled there to give her defense. Feeding the flames of an extreme polarization in the context of Rakhine, for example, can harm the values of peace and harmony in Myanmar. Aggravating the wounds of conflict can undermine unity in Rakhine. Hate narratives are not simply confined to hate speech. Language that contributes to extreme polarization also amounts to hate narratives. 
Suchi suggested that it was the international media and courts themselves that were fueling division and hatred. And once again, fake news ruled the day. Currently, uh, our country has been sued by Gambia uh, in International Court of Justice. So currently, according to our monitoring, there are old photos which has been used in the previous time, like 2015, 16, 17, are separating. We notice uh, that unusual movement right now. In the meantime, the election in Sri Lanka of an ultra-nationalist president and the mob violence against Muslims in Delhi showed that the problems in Myanmar may have just been a canary in the coal mine. This is Shwedegon Pagoda in Yangon, the most sacred site in all of Myanmar, glistening in over 20,000 solid gold bars on top of a hill. Legend dates it to the time of Gautama Buddha himself, who gave two travelers from Burma eight of his hairs that were then buried on this site. This place is no stranger to the uneasy mix of religion and politics, for better or worse. The site where crowds have gathered to mobilize both violence against Muslims and rally for democratic rights against military rule. Eight hairs. It's not difficult to see how Buddhism might be perceived as fragile in Myanmar. But maybe it's not Buddhism itself that is fragile. After all, it has a longer history than Christianity and Islam. But democracy in Myanmar, such as it exists, that's less than five years old, and increasingly under threat. In its own way, Facebook has mirrored the trends in Myanmar society as a whole, adhering to a belief system that preaches harmony and the connectedness of all things, while in reality sowing division. Like Myanmar, Facebook shows that movements that seem to trend towards greater democracy can set the table for the most malignant forces to rise to the top. Facebook, along with the rest of Silicon Valley, has another connection to Buddhism. On the next episode of Polarities, we're going to look at how Buddhism became the mindfulness craze, which has divided followers of the Buddha as well. Polarities is written and produced by me, Joel Elliott, with additional assistance from Marco Avolio. Music and sound mixing by Daffod Hughes. Translation by Pusin Tant and Parami Shun. Recording help from Miles Miley. Special thanks to Daniel Fuadvo and to those who spoke to me or who helped along the way. Thinjar Shun Yi, Mo Tui, Francis Wade, Richard Cockett, Mio Lin, Ashin Zero, and many others. You can subscribe to Polarities on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, and episode four should be in your feed right about now. Also, if you like the podcast, please don't hesitate to share it around. And you can follow us on Twitter at PolaritiesPod.